Great to see you guys today. What an awesome looking nine o'clock crowd. And I'm glad that you're here today to worship with us. If you have your Bibles, let's go together to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can open up the YouVersion Bible app and follow along with the points in the scriptures as we go this morning. And as you're finding that today, I just want to uh, just tell us how, how excited I am of uh, all that we've been able to do as a church together over the last 40 days. We finished Fierce 40 on Friday, and I know some of you are thinking, well, somebody else finished 40, finished Fierce 40. I didn't yet. Well, if you didn't, and that might be you, just keep reading and catch up, okay? We don't have any prizes today. You know, I was going to say, you know, everybody who finished Fierce 40, take your completed card to Chick-fil-A today, and they'll give you a free sandwich, but we know how that works on Sunday. But I, I just want to take a second, and see, it took a couple of you a second to get that. See, it's 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock. They'll be, they'll be a little quicker than you, maybe. But I want to say thank you to these folks right here who did our Fierce 40 devotions. If you're on social media, you saw them. And I want to give these folks a big hand. Will you give them a big hand? We, we had 12 of our church family who took a devotion and it just took a passage and shared. And I'm telling you, all 12 of them did an outstanding job. I was so blessed and encouraged by them every day. And, uh, and so I want to say thank you for you guys for sharing with us. I also want to mention that two weeks from today on October 1st, we're going to do something that we do about three times, about once every three years. And that is we're going to have an appreciation dinner and a banquet for our staff. And uh, this is just an opportunity for us to honor and recognize our pastoral staff, our children's, our um, youth, our kids, and, and treasury, and all those different things that I won't go through all of them. But it's going to be a special night here at the church on Sunday night, October the 1st. We want you to be a part of it. We need you to register for that because it is a catered meal and uh, all the information is on the website. It's uh, uh, adults only or sixth grade and up only, no kids, no nursery. But uh, we want you to be a part of that to come together and help honor our staff for that. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning as we pick up on our next uh, week installment, week five of this series on the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. God, we ask you to add your blessings and your anointing to the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. True crime documentaries. Open up your favorite streaming service. It might be Netflix. It might be Hulu. It might even be ESPN+. And among the thousands of selections, you'll see many titles that look like this. Hollywood no longer has to come up with stories. They just have to tell the stories that are in the headlines. It's interesting how many people engage with these stories because now when you pull up any of those streaming services you see them at the very top of the list and when we ask the question why do these stories fascinate us I think the answer is very simple we look at a guy like Aaron Hernandez and we ask the question how can you play in a Super Bowl after you've been accused of murdering two people the season before we look at someone like Murdoch, who we're familiar with his story an hour away, and it's hard to believe that a dynasty like his can be 
toppled the way it has over the last few years. And we ask the question, how? How do these stories happen? How can a person that seems to be so normal find themselves in such an awful, terrible situation and make such incredibly heinous decisions? Well, I think if the story we read a moment ago, the story of David and Bathsheba would have happened any time in the last 50 years, you would open up Netflix and see the next true crime documentary and it might look like this. Scandal, kingdom, scandal. The fall of the house of David. You know, this story that we've been reading in Fierce 40, it has everything. There's lust, there's adultery, there's conspiracy, there's murder, there's deceit. And at the center of it is this character that we've been getting to know over the last few weeks. And we ask the exact same question that we ask with all the other documentaries out there. We say, how could this happen? How could a man like David, who has rose to such a powerful position, fall? Almost as we read from one page to the next, it feels like overnight. You know, we got to know this guy in the first week and we, we found him in the shadow of selection. And we learned that God chose him as a young teenager and anointed him to be the next king of Israel. The next week we talked about him in the shadow of opposition and we watched him face Goliath and stand up to a giant that nobody else was willing to. The next week we see him in the shadow of the Spirit and we Balanced, you know, how David lived a spirit-led life and Saul lived a spirit-less life. And then when we left off, he was in the shadow of the ark and he was bringing the presence of God and the praise of God back to Jerusalem. So understanding all those things where David's trajectory the entire time we've been reading his story has been doing this. Now to see it start taking a turn and literally nosedive in one chapter, we have to ask that question, how does that happen? Well, to answer that question, I want to start today in the New Testament. There's a verse, three verses, that James gives us in James chapter 1. And look at this. James says about temptation, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. In this verse that James gives us, there are three words that you will see throughout the story that we're going to tell today. And right here they are. You see desire, you see sin, and then you see death. And just like our true crime documentary, Kingdom Scandal, The Fall of the House of David, today we take our remote and we say, you know what? I'm going to check this one out. So let's go to episode one of Kingdom Scandal, The Cause. Because that's the question we're asking, right? How does this happen? So let's look at the cause of this. And just like any true crime documentary, let's hear again what happened. In the spring at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Where's David? He's at home. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. He learns that she's Bathsheba. 
She's the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sends some messengers to get him, get her. He, she comes to him. He sleeps with her. She goes back home. Within a few weeks, she conceives and lets David know that she's pregnant. So how does this happen? Well, it starts with that David was in bed, not in battle. See, the scripture said at the time when kings go off to war, and what that means is that there were certain times where they would battle maybe going on at, at all times, but there were certain times where battle was very strategic because they would do their battles around the harvest season. And when harvest season wasn't going on, they could have all the soldiers on the field because the farmers could come as well. And that was the time of year that the kings joined them and everybody was there and David was not where he should have been. He was in bed, not in battle. The second thing we see from David is that David went from looking to lusting. He's on the roof. He's walking around. It's just a normal day. And he notices a woman bathing. And she's a beautiful woman. Now let me just say this, okay? That is normal for any man. That would be normal for any woman if the, if the roles were been, would have been reversed. So let's just say that if you're walking on your roof and you see a naked woman bathing, you're going to be like, whoa, there's a naked woman bathing. And the scripture says she was what kind of beautiful? Y'all, if the Bible says she was hot, she was hot. And just between you and me, when we get to heaven, after about a thousand years, I'm going to be like, okay, I want to see Bathsheba. I mean, you were thinking it, and I said it. But the problem was that David went from looking to lusting, and he stood there, and he looked, and he lusted, and he thought. And then he does the next thing. He inquired of her identity, and this is where he really starts to trip up. Because he asked, who is she? Then he ignores Bathsheba's status. He finds out she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that should have been it. He just said, okay, she's already married. I'm going back to bed. Or send me one of my wives. And then he takes another step. He dismisses Uriah's loyalty because we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 23 that Uriah is listed as one of David's 30 mighty men. So when David heard the name Uriah, there's no doubt he knew who he was. He had fought back to back with him in battle. He knew this was one of his best warriors and one of his best friends. David finally disobeyed God's commandments. I mean, David checked off number 7 and number 10 of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So that's the progression of what happened on that rooftop and into the bedroom. But we didn't answer how it happened. So let's go back. Let's click back to episode 1, the cause. And let's find out why did this happen. Well, we know David was a man of action. We've seen that throughout his entire story. But now he's not. And if you are a man of war, when you're not in war, your mind tends to wander. And David was bored. How many of you know bored boys can become bad boys? Some of our greatest sins, sometimes we find ourselves there simply because we're bored. Can I tell you today, boredom is your enemy. Sometimes it's good to be busy. Perhaps as a successful king, David thought he was above the law. Maybe he thought, you know what, I, it's not a big deal. But I'm going to tell you what I really think it was. It's safe to say 
that David was desensitized to the intimacy of sex as God intended it between one man and one woman because we know by this point he has multiple wives and multiple concubines and if one woman won't satisfy you, a thousand won't. And neither will a thousand and one. The bottom line, the man after God's own heart was suffering from low spiritual vitality. He was cold-hearted toward God. Someone once said when it comes to temptation, it starts with a thought. And for David, that was the cause. One thought that led to a trail of terrible decisions. That's the cause. Let's look at episode two. The conspiracy. So once David realizes that Bathsheba is pregnant and he's the baby daddy... He has a choice to make. Will he come clean and take responsibility or will he devise a plot to save himself? Now what we know about David, what we've learned about him, is he is a master strategist. And most of the time he uses his military mind to bring glory to God and to take everything and do everything he can to keep Israel safe. But now David looks a little bit like Saul. Because now he's trying to protect his own glory. Not the glory of God. Not the advancement of the nation. And he's trying to stave off the deterioration of the kingdom. And the embarrassment of his sin. And in walks conspiracy. And a man with a mind like David has a mind that can work with conspiracy. So watch what happens. It says David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah. Okay. I know who's husband this is I'm going to get him back here David he he comes to David and David just kind of does this song and dance with him and asks him you know how's things going and eventually he's like hey man why don't you take a couple days off and go be with your wife and you want to know how low David had gotten there's a little line in there in verse 8 that says a gift from the king was sent him he he sent him a little little something a little gift in there just to kind of just to kind of I don't know what it was, but sent him something. Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the entrance of, of the king's palace. And then David's told Uriah didn't go home. He brings him in. You've just come home from a military campaign. Why don't you go spend time with your wife? And Uriah said, listen, man, the ark and Judah and Israel and Joab and all your warriors are out on the battlefield. My conscience will not allow me to take a night off to go spend my, with my wife while all of Israel is out fighting a war. And David said, all right, well, just hang out a couple more days. I'll send you back. And then David throws a party. One of David's lowest moments as he's crashing is he gets the man drunk hoping that he'll be so intoxicated he'll struggle and stumble home into bed with his wife. And when that doesn't work, he has one more final plan, third plan, third strategy. I'm going to get Joab, and I send this letter with Uriah. He sent his death certificate with Uriah to the battlefield to tell Joab to take Uriah out to make sure it happens. Make no mistake about it, everything we just read was about one thing. David was trying to cover his own hide by getting Uriah home to sleep with his wife so he'd think the baby was his. Are we in true crime documentary now or what? A moment ago, David was bored, right? David's not bored anymore, y'all. He's got a mess. And this is one that 
This seasoned tactician says, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him off the battlefield. I'm going to send him home. That doesn't work. I'm going to get him drunk and then send him home. That doesn't work. And so finally he says, the only way I can get rid of this guy and and the only way this thing's going to go away is if I have this guy murdered. And really, Uriah's unmatched loyalty to David and the kingdom is ultimately what got him killed. Uriah's loyalty and integrity should have touched David's heart. But he was too far gone. In the end, a drunk Uriah showed more integrity than a sober David. From his book, David the Great, Mark Rutland said this, the story of Bathsheba can't be explained away by simply pointing out that David was a chieftain warlord at the cusp of the Bronze Age. The culture of the era in which he lived helps us deal with David's polygamy and military brutality. Adultery and the murder of a friend in order to cover it up are not about culture, they are about sin. And David has now committed adultery and murder and there's blood on his hands but there's coldness in his heart. And just like the storyline of any true crime documentary, there's always one thing that follows the crime, and that is episode three, the cover-up. Uriah is dead on the battlefield, as ordered by David. Joab sends back the following report. So, So listen, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? And then they give an example to that. And then he says, if he asked you about this, just say, hey, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. So the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told everything, David, everything Joab had had, uh, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now listen to David's response. Talk about cold. David told the messengers, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So, I think you noticed it. David's response to the messenger's report is like, well, that's kind of the way it is with war, guys. You win some, and you lose some. Tell Joab, don't worry about it. When you think about it, David's plan worked. It actually worked a little too good. It worked so good that sometimes, often, you don't hear it in books, or you don't hear it preached, that not only was the blood of Uriah on David's hands, but so were the other men who needlessly died When Joab sent that troop closer to the wall than he normally would. Guys, we're talking about the mightiest men of David here. Who wouldn't have done something like this. But they're following orders and they die in that way. All of that was so unnecessary. 
Tony Evans said this, David was so desperate to bury his sin that he decided to bury Uriah. And unfortunately, the report of multiple deaths didn't cause David to wake up and come to his senses. So what about Bathsheba? So Bathsheba's sitting at home. She finds out he's, he, her husband has died. She mourns. She has a time of mourning. And the scripture says when the time of mourning was over, then David sent for her. Wasn't that nice of David to wait until the time of mourning was over to send for her, for her to be his wife. She became his wife and bore him a son. Now, time out. If we're keeping score at home of the progression of David's sin, check this out. There's always a progression to sin. Sloth, laziness, lust. Could have stopped right there, right? Nine o'clock? Adultery. Could have stopped right there, right? Conspiracy. Murder. Deceit. Now, if that isn't enough, something else that we notice, and if you want to know how cold spiritually David had gotten, look at this next screen. Because it's safe to say that in this one chapter, David broke five of the Ten Commandments in one chapter. Number six, you shall not kill. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. What did he steal? His friend's wife. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He lied and he was at, 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 the, at the least he lied, at the most he was deceitful. And number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Wow, David. You made quick work of the right side of the Ten Commandments, the last five. There's a part in the middle of this story that rocks my brain when I read it because in the middle of this story, Uriah looks at David and he says, when he's asked, why couldn't you go home and be with your wife? And Uriah looks at him and he says, the ark and all of Judah and all of Israel and our leader Joab and all the men are out on the battlefield. How can I go home and be with my wife when we're in the middle of a war? And if you want to know how cold David's heart was toward the things of God, he did not check up when Uriah said, the ark. Two weeks ago, we talked about how David had a passion for the ark. Remember that, church? That represented the presence and the praise of God. And so, let me just ask anybody, what's one of the three things that's in the ark? The Ten Commandments. So David has not only now ignored the, the, the presence of God and the praise of God, he's ignored the policies of God. He's completely checked out in this whole thing. And now he's got to cover it up. See, here's the thing we need to understand. David never intended for any of this to happen. David didn't. 
but his enemy did. There's one thing about our enemy, the devil. Number one, he's real. And number two, I'm going to tell you, he's patient. He'll wait. David was probably around 50 years old when this happened. So he had been waiting for decades, y'all, to hit David. Did this happen overnight? No. Did that moment happen in a vacuum? No. David messed up when he started adding wives and adding concubines. And by the way, I've not said this so far in this series, but David, I think you get this, is not a 21st century Christian. He's not a New Testament guy. I really believe that one of the reasons, that, that the reason why, no, I'm not even going to say I believe it. The reason why the New Testament is so clear about sexual sin is to clear up the, the bombshell mistakes of the Old Testament. So don't ever read old and be like, I think I'll move to Utah and get me a bunch of wives because David had him a bunch of wives. There's a documentary about that too, (laughs) y'all. In his book on the life of David, listen to this. Charles Swindoll says this, man, this is powerful. It has been my observation that over the years that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He only shows you the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there'll be a hangover and ultimately you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, You're going to get caught, friend. You do this and you'll wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't warn the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility or you could get a life-threatening disease or you will ruin your integrity in the eyes of your spouse, children, family, and friends. Are you kidding? Face it. When the sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil's nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall, but he leaves you with no encouragement when the consequences kick in. Someone once said it this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. So we've got the calls, the conspiracy, the cover-up. Anybody want to watch episode four? Here we go. Confrontation. By the time we get to 2 Samuel eleven twenty six, consider how many people know about David's sin and have failed to say anything to him about it. The first guy who he asked, who is she, never checks up. None of his servants or messengers or warriors say anything. Joab never says something fishy is going on because why does David want me to kill Joab? None of his other wives or concubines are are on this and all the women in the room know that they knew something was going on. Can I get an amen from the ladies? Right? Bathsheba never says anything to him about it. Here's the point. Everyone else may have ignored it, but there was one who did not. Verse 27. 
But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The last line of chapter 11, there it is. Turn over to chapter 12 and look at the next line. The the Lord was displeased. And nine months later, within a year, the Lord sent Nathan to David. In walks the confrontation. And Rutland says in his book, it's interesting, he says, you know, can you imagine what that would have been like? David sitting on the throne. Perhaps Joab is there, some of his warriors, some of his wives, some of his concubines, some of his servants. And there's a knock on the door. Somebody wants to see you, king. Who is it? It's Nathan the prophet. Anybody know what it feels like to get a, a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach? Anybody know, anybody know that feeling, right? That's David. Boom. The prophet. So, so this is the guy who replaced Samuel. Send him in. He walks in the room and he starts with David. I, I got this story I want to tell you, man. I don't know if you've heard this one. This is a great story I want to share with you. And David goes, he's just here to tell another one of those old men prophet stories. Yeah, man, go ahead. Let's hear it. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and he grew it up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. David's engaged. He's listening. Now, the twist in the story, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now listen to David's response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Mm is right. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore... The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. 
You can't imagine the tension in the room when Nathan says, you are the man, and he finishes that speech. Joab has his hand on the sword, and he's just waiting for a nod from David for him to pull it out and take off Nathan's head. His servants are sitting there. They can't believe that somebody's walked into the courts of one of the most powerful men on the planet and talked to him like that. And his wives and concubines are looking back and they're saying, it finally came out. To summarize, the Lord was displeased. Nathan was obedient, and David was exposed. The Confrontation, Episode 5, the, co- the Confession. So how does David respond to Nathan? Had he been Saul, he likely would have started making excuses and even calling for the head of Nathan. But not David. Perhaps having his sin confronted, called out, and exposed is exactly what David was hoping for. I'd like to think that the last year of David's life, as he sat on the throne, thinking about everything he did, he did was a year where he was uncomfortable and miserable and just plain sick. Y'all, I believe the man after God's own heart was relieved when it all came out. How do you know that, Pastor? We see in David's six-word response a flood of relief and a wave of forgiveness. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And you don't think that we serve a good, gracious, loving, forgiving God. Without checking up, he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You want to talk about grace? You want to talk about Ephesians chapter 2 that we can't earn it and we don't deserve it and there's nothing we can do to work for our salvation or receive the grace of God. Right there is a New Testament principle anchored in an Old Testament story. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. Now, the consequences of that sin are ginormous. And we're going to unpack that next week in episode 6 of this story. But after that exchange, does anybody else agree with me and just kind of give me a 9 o'clock nod to think, you think David was relieved? I, I do. I think he was relieved. Here's what he did, y'all. He did something he'd not done in a long time. He went and got a sheet of paper. And he went and got a pen. And he went to a room by himself. And he did something he had not done in a long time. And he sat down with his harp. And he started writing a song. 
And all that had been pent up in him for a year just came pouring out. Psalm 51. Listen. Listen. <laughs> Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Wow. No excuses, y'all. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones, the bones you have crushed, rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not take your presence or your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now David finishes writing that, that psalm and he calls in the choir director. He says, I've got a new psalm for you. And the guy's like, well, my goodness, we've been singing the same things for a year now. You've not produced any new material. I'm so glad to have a new song. He begins to read it to him and sing it to him. And the choir director says, King, we, we can't sing this. We, we can't record this, man. We, we can't sing this song. It's too raw. It's just too real, David. I, do you really want us to sing this song? Do you really want the choir to learn this? Do you really want this to be repeated over and over and over and over? And David says, yes, absolutely. Open the service with it. Close the service with it. Put it on a billboard in the middle of the city. Let's make sure that people never forget where I've been. But let's make sure that people don't forget the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. After all that he had been through, such an incredible heartfelt confession. So, that's the documentary up until this point. So what do we learn from all this today? What are the life lessons from sin's shadow today that we need to learn? Well, let's go back to our opening scripture today and and I want to look at it again. And I, want, I hope right now there's going to be light bulbs that go off all over the room. Did we see it? Desire. Sin. Death. Multiple deaths. And even this child that would be born. And we're not going to tell that part of the story. But this child that was conceived in adultery would not live either. 
There's a verse that is tucked away in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that says this. Now these things, and, and Paul here is talking about Old Testament stories. Old Testament stories occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Paul says there's lessons to learn from the left side of the book. Here's three lessons we need to walk away with today from this story. Number one, watch your step. See, nothing is wasted in Scripture. Not one syllable is there by accident. And the first three sentences of chapter 11 that tell us that Joab and everybody's out at war and David's at home is there to let us know David did not watch his step. Watch your step. Listen to me. When you're somewhere where you should not be, where you, when you are on a site where you should not be, where you are, when you are scrolling somewhere where you should not be, when you are in a place in your head where you should not be, you are opening a door for the enemy. Watch your step. But the Word of God tells us, 1 Corinthians 10 says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Everybody is tempted just like you are. But God is what? Nine? What? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure. Here's the thing about the story of David. I, I, I've read it multiple times over the last two weeks. And what I can't get away from is all the doors that, da that God provided David to get out. And he took none of them. Watch it. He sees a woman bathing. Way out. Go home or go back to the battlefield. He asked her name. Way out. Oh, he hears she's married and she's married to one of your warriors. That's a way out. Sends messengers to get her. Way out between the time where he said, go get Bathsheba. And he's laying in the bed knowing why he wants her to come. He had to think about it. It took time for her to get from his house, her house to his house. There was time where he could have gotten out. Between sleeping with Bathsheba and finding out she was pregnant, in that window, a way out. He could have repented right there. Finding out that she was pregnant, right there, he could have said, all right, I admit my sin, I repent, I'm going to deal with the consequences, let's get Uriah home, let's get him to his wife, and let's try to make this thing right. But instead, he sins for Uriah. And what was the way out there? He's standing face to face, y'all, with one of his most, most valued warriors. And this man's standing here talking about the ark, my goodness. And David doesn't see the way out. He gets Uriah drunk. He doesn't go home. Way out. Uriah's loyalty is unprecedented. Then... This should have got David. He sits down, y'all. He writes a letter in his own handwriting and says, I want you, Joab, to make sure that Uriah dies tomorrow. He should have stopped and said, what am I doing? A way out. And when he receives word that Joab is dead, he should have fallen under the weight and conviction of murder. But he did not because he did not. He ignored all the way. You can't tell me David didn't have multiple exits available to him throughout this whole story. Why did it happen? Let's go deep. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire. 
which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret, smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. David didn't hate God. He had forgotten God. And he didn't take any of those ways out. So, guard your heart, protect your mind, watch your step is the first lesson from sin shadow. The second lesson is surrender your thoughts. Let's go back to the beginning of the story. David's walking on the roof. He sees a beautiful woman. That could have been it. He could have returned to the battle. Or, let's just be real honest. I know there's kids in here, but you brought them in here. It's real. It's, it, it's, uh, it's that moment. He's seeing a beautiful, naked woman. He's fired up. He's got plenty of wives and plenty of concubines to take care of that passion. He could have had all of them for the next three days to cool him off. But he picked one that wasn't his. If he would have surrendered that thought of passion in the moment, everything else would have stopped. Paul comes along in 2 Corinthians and he gives us an answer. He says, we demolish. Remember what did your pastor say a while ago? Oh, I'm about to get on a chair. The New Testament is written to correct the mistakes of the Old Testament. Here we go. We demolish arguments in every petition that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive what? Everybody. Every thought. Say it. Every thought. And make it obedient to Christ. If David is standing up there and he's looking out and he sees Bathsheba. If he stops and he takes that thought captive, none of the rest happen. And so the lesson for us is very simple. We have to take those thoughts captive. The scripture says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now we've, we've given you some pretty deep stuff to this morning, so let's laugh for a minute. How many of you remember this guy? I know I'm two slides ahead. Anybody remember this guy? 1983. Carmen writes this. King David was smitten down to his socks when his eyes caught that Bathsheba fox. His resistance was so shook that he backslid. He went and had her husband killed thinking his dreams would be fulfilled, but God would make him wish that he never did. The Lord punished him severe for being stupid as an ape. But, God, but David's faith was strong and God soon pulled him back in shape. There's a lesson to be learned here about dealing with temptation. You keep your eyes on the creator men and not on his creation. Charles Swindoll says, when you run from temptation, lust backs off. 
But what we tend to do, go back to that next verse, submit yourself to the Lord, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But here's what we do, and we've all been guilty of it. When we have that thought, we start pulling ourselves. Can I get an amen? We start pulling ourselves toward that thought. And, and, and once we start, whatever it is that we're dealing with, the temptation that's there, if we initially fail, the enemy always says the same thing. At least this is what he says to me. Okay, you blew it here, so just go ahead and take, you know, a day or two to just keep blowing it. So just keep scrolling. Just keep talking about that situation or that person. Just keep exploring if that relationship can become something more. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the enemy says, you're already, your foot's already in the water, David. You're already looking. You're already seeing. You might as well go ahead and get all the way in. The enemy doesn't want us to take this this spot where we stop when our foot is right there and we say, no, nope, I'm going to take this thought and I'm going to get out and I'm going to give this thought to God. And when I begin, when I learn how to do that, see, I believe that a sign of spiritual maturity is that even when you sin, you obey the voice of the Holy Spirit and you stop, drop, and roll. You stop what you're doing you drop on your knees and you roll your sin to the foot of the cross. Take every thought captive. Surrender your thoughts. As you guys give me some background music, the last one. Watch your step. Surrender your thoughts. Admit your sin. This is the one thing that David gets right in this story. We'll talk about the consequences, and they were, they were massive. We'll talk about those next week. But David admitted his sin. I, I gave you a quote from Tony Evans a while ago. I want to finish the rest of that quote. He said, David was so desperate to bury his sin that he buried Uriah. And this is what sin will do to you if you refuse to deal with it. It will bury you. Can I get an amen? Anybody been there, done that? The best thing we can do when we sin is admit it immediately, confess it, and take it to Jesus. David would write in another psalm, Psalm 32, listen to this. He said, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We read it a moment ago, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. Wash away my iniquity. Against you and only you have I sinned. Beautiful passage of forgiveness. Proverbs 28, written by guess who? The son of David and Bathsheba. The next son, King Solomon, would write, probably learning from his daddy, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds what? And John says, John, Jesus' best buddy, 
who hung out with him, rubbed arms with forgiveness and grace and love and mercy. He wrote it like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. David's sincere confession made way for God's complete forgiveness. And when we sincerely confess our sins to God, we open up the opportunity for God to do what He wants to do, and that is restore us and forgive us and love us. There is no sin too great for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I want to tell you today, stop hiding, start confessing. Receive the complete forgiveness of God. Amen? documentary to be continued. Let's stand together today as the worship team comes in.